Hey everybody, it's Matthew. Uh, welcome back to episode two of the Who Knows podcast. Uh, we're going to fast forward about 65 million years into the future for something that's a little bit more linked to current events. I uh, just got done watching the inauguration this morning. It's kind of an interesting time, obviously, in this world's history, kind of a changing of the guard. You can feel some tectonic shifts happening or a turning of the page. Um, I think the, the guest that we brought on today, you're going to really love her, but I think the message that we talk about today has probably more importance now in light of what needs to happen in our country, regardless of political opinions. Um, much of who we are as a country is based on an outward heroic journey, right? It's why people are drawn to us as a nation, our ability to dream big, our ability to think beyond the confines of um, our government, our religion, and our, our, our politics to imagine a world that's not there. And we've done some pretty amazing things as a result of that kind of heroic impulse, you know, going to the moon and Manhattan Project types of things, but it's all been very outward, the journey has. And it's been missing a vital component to it, which is the opposite of the hero's journey. It's the, the heroine's journey and the journey inward to meet those shadow parts of ourself that we've created as we've projected to the world this heroic image. We've forgotten the ugly parts of ourself that we don't want to acknowledge are truly us as well. And we need to start looking at the nature of the story we've been telling ourselves and the nature of the story that we've been living. And what better person to help us recraft the narrative than a professional book doctor. So my guest today is Sarah Stibitz. Sarah is a someone who's not only professionally working with entrepreneurs and authors to help them fix their own story. She's lived a lot of these heroic impulses um, chased her dreams as well, uncovered a lot of different things along the way, um, and not only in terms of healing pieces of literature, but healing yourself and things that I think would also help us heal as a society. So I'm really excited to share with you the conversation with Sarah today. I also want to give a shout out to my brother Joel, who contributed a song for today. Uh, the intro and the outro song are from my brother Joel Smith an original song that he wrote called New York City. So thanks, Joel, if you're listening. appreciate the contributions. And I uh, hope you all enjoy the episode. So first of all, welcome to the Who Knows podcast. I uh, think I was introduced to you first by, and I'm going to give her a shout out because I know if the two of us are doing things together, she's 100% listening right now. So uh, Oksana and Adam actually had introduced us back in the day. Oksana was a mutual friend from mine, and she's also been uh, a teacher of mine doing it with yoga and breathing and all kinds of cool things. And we had met them mutually, and we had dinner together about, it's, wow, it's probably been a year ago now since um, COVID. Um, yeah. So that's kind of how we got to met, meet each other originally. So hi, Oksana. Hi, Adam. Uh, <laughs> And thank you for connecting us, guys. Yeah, 100%. So for people who don't know you, um, you've had a kind of a circuitous professional life that has had some twists and turns to it. Um, you started off working as not in, what was it, the uh, as, a, as an investigator, right? 
uh, back in your in your early days, and then you kind of had this kind of epiphany moment that. So, would you mind telling me because you had a, you told a story earlier this year about the time when you were working as an investigator, uh, and an experience that you had that was kind of a revelatory experience in light of everything that's going on this year. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about that because I was curious how you got into that world, first of all. Yeah, so, okay. Um, back in 2013, I had been working as a, um, a legal investigator for about seven or eight years by that time. And I'd first started out as a criminal defense investigator. So I worked with the public defender's office and then I worked in civil rights. And I was good at my job. I really liked it. This conference um, will now be recorded. Sorry about that. It was already recorded, but I just belt and suspended it just in case. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, yeah. So, I really, I liked my job. I was good at it. Um, but there came a point where my life really started to shift in 2011 and 2012. Like, I left a nine-year relationship in 2011, and that had really been, you know, that was a big commitment and then in 2011 or 2012 my mother died and that was a long six-year haul of taking care of her after she'd had a stroke you know six years prior so 2013 i just i was suddenly like free of these things that were i don't want to say holding me down like a burden but they were like things that kept me in one place committed to certain things um and i remember walking into my office one day and sitting in my cubicle and the night before or two nights before I had a conversation with the executive director who um, who I saw as a mentor and she had mentioned that it's possible I may be promoted to her position when she leaves or that she would suggest I take her position. And it had been such a flattering moment and also like, wow, how could I do like, I just didn't even believe I could do it. And it, but it was such a um, such a compliment coming from her. But I walked in, you know, two mornings later to sit in this cubicle and it's just this, you know, gray lighting and it's the same thing. And while it used to be challenging, it's no longer a challenge at all. And I just sat there at my desk thinking, is this really it? Is this really it? Um, and I just didn't do much with that thought at the time until I think it was a few weeks later, I was home on a visit to see my dad in Minneapolis and I went to a, a Kundalini yoga class. And um, I returned to his house afterwards to just sort of rest before I had to make the four hour drive home. And I was laying there and I felt this wave come over the top of my head. And I say that like, it was obviously not a physical wave, but it felt like I could feel it coming from far away and that it was something that crashed over the top of my head. And it was this realization that I was not in the right place doing the right thing. It's like, everything about what I was doing was not quite what it was meant to be. And nothing was wrong. There was like, I was making good money. Like my life was pretty stable. I had good friends, but it just wasn't, it wasn't quite right. And so it was such a harsh realization. So I laid there like crying for a little bit and then I had to get up and go back to Iowa and prepare for work the next day. And as I drove back, I started to feel that feeling fade a little bit. As, and I was, I was literally like, I'm glad it's fading. That way I don't have to do anything about it. Um, and so it was sort of like, okay, this is going away. Maybe it was just a momentary thing. And, you know, it, it didn't mean what I'm making it mean. But it really didn't like 
fade out. It just lessened. It wasn't so heavy. And so that was a Sunday that that happened. And I think by Wednesday, I had made the decision that I needed to do the one thing that I had always wanted to do, which was to travel the world alone. And I really didn't know where I wanted to go. It was just, that was the vision. Every time I daydreamed about it, it was me traveling alone, just wherever I wanted to go. And so by Wednesday, I think I had decided like, okay, this is what's calling me and I need to stop messing around. Because if there's anything that my mom's death taught me is that we just don't have as much time as we think we do. And um, so I think it was by that Wednesday that I had gone into the office and told my executive director that I was that in two months I was going to be leaving and uh, and kind of set myself in motion from that point on. OK, so these are my favorite kind of stories. Um, <laughs> and there is like when you tell the story, it's I just smile because you use the same language and you describe the same experiences that I had. And it's like, for example, you talk about the feeling of you're in there, you're looking around, you're seeing the cubicles, you're seeing the grayscale gray mental images, you're fast forwarding your life forward and you're wondering is this is what it's gonna look like in five, 10, 20 years. Literally had the same exact experience. I had it twice um, before I, kind of jumped off the cliff once was in uh, finished up undergrad and was taking some foot in the water courses on master's level courses. And I was just seeing myself with corduroy jackets with patches on the sleeves and <laughs> struggling to get tenure and uh, a lot of asbestos tiles in my life. And, and I was like, are you doing this? Like, because you got something to prove your dad and his dad who all did this kind of thing. And is that a good enough reason to do it? And then I had the second experience when I was offered a promotion, like you described, where they were like, hey, you're really good at this. You want a like managerial position? And it was for people like you and I who love story. And um, it was it was almost like a uh, in the time you don't realize it. But looking back, you realize it was almost like a contrived crossroads moment for the character where it was take the money or follow the dream <laughs> kind of thing. Right. Um, but it, it was such an acute moment where you realized that, okay, this is it. This is where you have the opportunity to follow or whatever. So, um, so two questions. One, do you think that like Kundalini classes are designed to to kind of evoke the experience of that you're describing. So do you connect the, do you directly connect those two events to what you experienced to the classes? Totally. Yeah. And I, I've, you know, what, I've studied yoga. I actually used to teach yoga for a while. Um, and everything that they tell you about Kundalini when you're first starting out is that you need to be careful with these practices because they can wreak havoc on your life. And you might get messages that are either like wildly disturbing in, in, in all kinds of ways or like upsetting to your life and you're just not ready for it. So, um, so I was kind of aware of that possibility, like, well, maybe I'm having just an overly emotional experience and, um, you know, maybe I don't need to take it as seriously, but I had been practicing long enough and knew my, also knew myself well enough to know that it wasn't, it wasn't just like a one-off strange experience with a Kundalini awakening, that it was something that was really my heart's calling. Uh, but I definitely connect the two. And I've heard other stories of people who um, have a Kundalini experience and 
things don't turn out as well for them. And so yeah. I, I'd say that with like, yeah, I, I think there's, there should be some caution when listening to those experiences. I was talking, um, one of our, my first guest is a buddy of mine, David Goldstein. He used to be, a, um, he now is a political consultant in New York, but he also was a cantor in the Jewish faith, a singer, and we used to wait tables together and he became a Buddhist monk and he worked in palliative care and things, end of life kind of stuff. So we were talking about that because in the 70s, they used to have these Kundalini awakening centers that they were designed to help people who were having experiences that they didn't know what to do with, right? And um, I come from, a, my mom comes from like a Pentecostal background. And uh, so they have, Kundalini was something that sounded very Eastern. It sounded very like out there kind of esoteric stuff and probably wasn't at all uh, allowed into the circle of things that were accepted behavior because it describes things using words that are foreign. Uh, you know, even though in Pentecostal traditions, they will have like the laying out of hand moment where you might have someone touch you on the forehead or on the shoulder and you have a very similar um, experience described in a different way. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's kind of like setting a lot of electricity through a gauge of a wire that might not be able to accept it. It can blow out right. the wire if it's not ready, right? Exactly. That's a really great way to put it. Yeah. So you had you have this moment, you're at the crossroads, your dream is calling you and you say what and do what? So I, when, I, I basically, oh, go ahead. No, no, that's it. Yeah, yeah. So like I said, I, it wasn't like I'm laying in the bed and it's like, here's what you have to do. It was just like, things are not right. Something is just askew. And um, I kind of sat there and thought like, well, what's the only thing I really ever wanted to do? And that was really it. I, that's the only thing I could ever remember really wanting was to go travel by myself. And so I started to actually, but you know, as I said, by this time I was uncommitted in a lot of ways and there was nothing really holding me to the place that I was. And for the first time I could really think like, what, what happens if I quit my job and go travel? And it's nobody but me who's really affected for the first time. Um, so I, I sat with it for a few days and I actually allowed myself to, instead of just like wanting it and then putting it aside, it was sort of like, okay, well, let's really want it and put it in front of you and then think about, think through like, how does it feel? How does it work? What would you do? When would you go? And it just became really clear. Like it just grew, like my joy just grew. And as much as I loved my executive director, I remember sitting in her office, you know, two to three days later, and she was disappointed, but very supportive of me. But I had a hard time keeping the total like face splitting grin from <laughs> my mouth. Like, cause I, I was just like, oh my God, I'm doing it, you know? And, <laughs> and, and here I'm telling, you know, someone who I view a mentor as a mentor that I'm not gonna say. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know, I literally like had to stop myself from skipping out. So for me that it was that joy that was like effervescent and bubbling that was like, okay, this feels like the right thing for the first time in a long time. You ever seen those, uh, they have those teas that are flowers that when you pour the hot water on them, they, they oh, open yeah. up and blossom, you know? Yeah. And it's like you were that flower tea and the kundalini energy or whatever the decision that that it just pours it on it and it just comes alive, right? And I yeah. think that's what people don't understand who haven't yet jumped uh, is the fact that 
you don't have to control it. You just have to pour the hot water on it and it will blossom and it will take you on beautiful, amazing journeys on its own type of thing, <laughs> type of thing. So you, you went to South America next, right? I mean, that was the, where the journey led you? Yeah, yeah. So it was funny because at first I was like, I'll just go all the places. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I said, you know, Thailand and Morocco and somewhere in Europe. And, uh, I, and eventually I think I came back down to earth and realized like, okay, I actually just want to go to South America. And what I really wanted to do was to re return to Brazil where I lived with my parents um, when I was a kid, when I was young. And didn't know this, but at the time, like, I was like, I'm going to do it all myself. You have to apply for a visa before you go. And the, for anyone wanting to do that, just get a travel agent. Just do the thing <laughs> through the travel agent. Don't try to do it yourself. But I tried to do it myself. They rejected me. I was like, oh, my God, I can't go. To, I can't return to the place where I was with my parents, you know, and it was it was sort of a big bummer. So I just kind of had to pick a place to start. And I started in Ecuador. And then as I worked with other travelers, I realized like there's other ways to do it. You can um, apply through uh, embassies in other countries and you just have to stay there for a while because, and you have to give up your passport while you, while you apply for it because they need to have your passport. Um, so, you know, there's a comfort level that you need to be at with that. Um, but you can, but you can apply for a visa in other places and still make it through to Brazil. Um, so I kind of went from Ecuador to Peru to Bolivia and Bolivia is where I stopped for a while to take Spanish lessons and to apply for the visa to go to Brazil. And then I kind of curved around into Brazil and then up into Colombia. And I spent almost a month in each place. Some places it was actually more than a month. I actually got very sick in Brazil. So I was there for about six, six or eight, six or eight weeks, I think in total. Um, but for the most part, I was slow traveling. I kind of wanted to spend some time in each place and experience it. So I didn't know that about you. Where in Brazil, by the way, did you grow? Were you when you were young? Yeah, we were in Campinas for two years, and it's right outside of Sao Paulo. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's like two. I think it's two hours outside of Sao Paulo. A pretty developed city. It's like it's a pretty big big city. There's um, quite a lot of businesses there. Quite a lot of international businesses there. And, I, and like, why were you all there? Uh, my dad's job moved, moved us there right after I was born. And we were there until I was about two and a half. And then, so I don't know if I told you this, but I used to live in South America, north of Brazil as a kid. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is another thing that just happens when you, it's like you just have big random like connections, serendipity. But I... Um, yeah, my dad's job took us down there as a kid too. He read, he found a job in the back of a magazine, and a couple of weeks later, we were in South America, in a, in a country with a dictator who had just taken over the country. Um, um, but uh, yeah, Suriname between Dutch and and French and Dutch Guiana uh, was. We lived in the capital city of Paramaribo when we were down there. So I've I've from friends from college who were down near Sao Paulo and some other places. So, um, but yeah, it's and still have family who are in Peru and. Um, so my, my parents went to over to Quito and Ecuador when we were down there. And uh, so it sounds like you had a quite a fun little journey there, though, except for the last stage when you got sick in Brazil. That doesn't sound like fun at all. Yeah, that was that was a, <laughs> I ended up with pneumonia and 
I had bust from, oh, where was it? The Pantanal, like I'm forgetting the town. Oh, Bonito. The town was Bonito and I had bus from Bonito to Campinas, which was like a 17 hour bus ride. And I just started to feel weirder and weirder. And then they don't have hostels in Campinas because it's just more of a business city. So I found like a cheap hotel. I was like, okay, I just need to sleep. That's it. And so I slept. And then the next day I did not feel any better, could barely, didn't make it out of the hotel. I just ate at their buffet, which is like saying something, right? If you're just gonna eat all three meals at the buffet in the hotel. So I slept again and like the third day, I think I got up to go to the bathroom and I looked at myself in the mirror and I was like, oh, you're, something's really wrong. And it was the first moment that I thought like, you might actually have to go home. Like I just intrinsically knew something was not okay. And um, so I had to communicate that I needed to go to the hospital or to a doctor that spoke English. And I told the hotel staff this, and of course I don't speak Portuguese. Well, you stopped in Bolivia, you have a little Spanish, so you can, you're halfway there. <laughs> they understand me, but I do not yeah. understand them. <laughs> like they, they're getting me and I'm like, I have no idea what you're saying. I can like piece together a few words. So, you know, I end up in a taxi, I go to this hospital and, um, you know, I managed to find, I managed to communicate to the first nurse. It's a base. I'm sitting in the ER with like 45 other people waiting and, um, I'm waiting for the doctor to come. And this woman sits next to me and she starts telling me in Portuguese, but well enough that I could understand. She's like, you are an angel. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm like, I'm out of it. I'm really sick. Like I really can't function. I'm kind of disconnected. I'm, I'm she's, so I hear her say like, you're an angel in Portuguese. And I just kind of look at her and I'm, I'm kind of studying her and she looks a little frazzled. She's got like a bloody hand, just an openly bloody <laughs> wounded hand. And, and then she's like, you are light. And I, and I'm just looking <laughs> I don't know you. what to do right now. And then she goes, you are Jesus Christ. And at that point, the situation was so absurd to me that I had to, I almost started laughing because I was like, I'm in such trouble right now. I don't have any idea what's going on. I have no idea what kind of hospital this is right now. And this woman's telling me with a lot of earnestness and seriousness that I am Jesus Christ and I don't want to laugh at her. So like controlling every facial muscle I had to just nod solemnly and then see, see, avert my eyes. <laughs> yeah. So it turned out I had pneumonia and I needed to chill out for six weeks. And uh, yeah, it was it was definitely an adventure. Not quite the one I had anticipated, but it had its own, you know, high points. Not the adventure you want, but the adventure you need. Um, so this is kind of so it's interesting to me because it never goes the way that you anticipate it going, like when you make the leap on these things. And I think that some level that's, that we have this desire to control the narrative, you know, and steer it in the direction we want the story to go. I think Stephen King talks about the on writing, it's, it's more of like archeology span kind of work yeah. rather, you know, and that's the same thing with living the story. Uh, it's, you're just uncovering what it has for you without any kind of, 
pretense of what the ending is going to look like and be completely okay with that, right? Mm -hmm. So you went, you did the things, you got sick, you found out you were Jesus of the light, and then you come back home and now you have to figure out how to integrate this into day-to-day experience. So like, like what you, you come home off this high and then what happens? Yeah, so while I was traveling, I had started writing for myself for the first time. Um, what I mean by that is that when I was working as an investigator, I wrote all the time, but I was read, writing legal reports and analyses. And it was not only pretty boring, but it was I was always disappointing somebody um, with, the, with whatever decision we were making. And there's, no, there's not a lot of room for artistry there either. Like I once snuck in references to um, the movie, The, the Office, into a, into a case just to like amuse myself. And, uh, and that was like the highlight of my, of my month, <laughs> just like <laughs> make it work. And uh, so anyway, I thought I hated writing when I quit. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. But while I was traveling, I, I started to write just to sort of like catalog what was happening and to figure out how I felt about it and what I'd learned because there's just so much around me. Um, and then I started sharing the writing and people really liked it. I just had a lot of positive response. Um, and pretty soon a friend of mine who was running a magazine at the time reached out and said, can I have someone interview you about your travels? And I just had this thought and the thought was, can I just write the article about my travels for your magazine? <laughs> she was like, yeah, of course you could do that. And, um, so I did, and, and then it, that was sort of like the first little tiny little starter snowball. And then it just kind of worked from there where I just kind of went from one piece to another and got one opportunity after another. And so by the time I came back, I had, this, I had thought that I would go into mediation, which was a different part of what I did as an investigator. And I tried to do that for a while, but my heart wasn't totally in it. And meanwhile, I was also writing. And so I was sort of trying to do both things, like, you know, make it work as a writer, make it work as a mediator. And that was just not working to do both of them. And then this, there just came this moment where I had to decide, like, which one, which one do I really want to do? And I went with writing. And so, so it took seven months before I fully admitted, like, okay, it's okay just to be a writer and, and everything that that means to be starting out, you know, from totally square one. Because that was really the fear, right? If I was going to say I'm a mediator and I'm continuing at least this part from my previous job, uh, which I already have connections with and I have skills and I've got training and a track record and all this stuff, it's at least taking that from my old job and, you know, almost like affirming, affirming that part of my life and then moving it forward where the writing, it was like almost a full stop. Like you're really letting go of that world and you're starting into something completely different. Um, and I think that was the fear was like letting go and saying, no, I'm, I'm actually a writer and I really don't have anything to do with the legal world anymore. So a, a couple of things you said again were really cool because I think at least for me, when my whole journey started, it was like, I don't know what my dream is. Like people tell you to follow your dreams, but I had no clue what my dream was there were no dream dojos that i could go to practice dreaming and and figure out what it was and so i think and i was talking to a, a 
group of college age um, uh, young people. Young people, oh my God. <laughs> I sound like a youth bastard. Uh, anyways, uh, they so and they were trying to, uh, to ask me career advice, and I was like, you know, probably the one thing I can tell you right now is learn to understand your voice and like learn to listen and pay attention to the different qualities and ta uh, timbres of the voices that you have in your head, because some of them they're all leading you in different directions, right? Um, and some of them are like those little Gulliver's Travels people that will tie you down, and other ones will liberate you. And 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 when so when you say that you had like you would sneak these little Easter eggs on the office into your reports and these, those would give you joy, right? It's like, I think everybody has those Easter eggs that they put in their life that when they do it, they're like, ah, that gets them really happy. And I think that's, that's enough in the beginning of a starting point just uh, it's Joseph Campbell, follow your bliss kind of idea. It sounds so trite and so simple, but just see where it leads you. Walk the path a little bit, follow it down and see what happens and let the, the hot water unfold the tea kind of thing, right? Totally. I think what's interesting is that it's always going to shift though, because I'm at a, I'm at a junction point now. It doesn't have to be a junction, like it's a turn or something, but you know, it's, I'm at a point now where I'm realizing, all right, I got into writing for the love of it because I was just freely expressing myself. And then it was exciting to see where I could go with it. Like, okay, I've got this opportunity with, um, you know, the local newspaper and now this opportunity with a national magazine and, and all this. And now I've got this big client and I'm writing a book. So there's, you know, I'm a professional achiever. So there's some, there's some of that <laughs> in there. And now seven years into it, I've realized I have to, I almost have to go back to that freely expressing myself part because that's what gave me joy in the first, in the first place. And you yeah. can get really distracted from the, the joy, the actual thing that's giving you that, um, you know, flower opening feeling and get tied up in the achievement and the accomplishment, which I think is also valid. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that's not important. At least it's important to me and I recognize that, but I, but I found over the last seven years, I've had to do a hard look, especially in the last year with this, you know, with everything going on at like, okay, how much am I actually allowing myself to do the, the thing, the free expression, the writing about what I want to write about as opposed to what my client wants to write about? Um, or how much have I gotten off track and I'm just writing for business? So I think it's it's like always, you always have to come back to that. It's I don't feel like it's ever really over. Yeah, so I guess we haven't really, there, there's, I don't like, there's so much about like you that is not connected to what you do right mm -hmm. that i want wanted people to know that first i guess at some level so thanks for sharing but i mean but at the end of the day you are also side note a bit of a badass book doctor uh and coach for people who are authors and things like that professionally fair enough right thank we you. can own, we can own that right yeah <laughs> yes i own that okay cool um so you how, how does because there's something I want to that it will pertain to this in, in terms of writing and the things that characters do in the book to a, both our journeys and yours specifically. But how do you become a book doctor? Mm. How, how is that a thing? How did I become a book doctor? How did that happen? Oh, okay, yeah. So the whole journey, um, the whole journey as a writer and then as a as a ghostwriter book anyone having to do with books right it was sort of like a okay i work on this project for self-published books and then this guy 
who's friends with that author wants me to work on his book, which is traditionally published. So then I'm working with the editor and that author and that editor at that publishing house really likes my work and we just get along, we click. And then she likes my work so much that she says, hey, you know, I have a list of people that we keep just in case we need, um, you know, short-term help with a project. Do you want to be on that list? Like this was, I think in 2017, I had this conversation with her. Um, do you want to be on that list? And I was like, sure. You know, and that in my head, I'm like, yeah, I'll probably never get called, but that's cool. That's, I really appreciate it. And she literally called back the same day, two hours later and said, I have a project for you. And it's a, it's really in huge trouble. And the ghostwriter has ghosted. <laughs> the ghostwriter on this project has ghosted and the, the deadline has been blown through twice and they only have 15,000 words for a 60,000 word manuscript. And we're either gonna cancel the contract or we need to find someone who can write this book in three months, write the rest of this book in three months. So I was crazy enough to say yes. <laughs> and uh, it was a little insane, but it was, it was a really great leap to take. But so how I became a book doctor is just sort of like I had, I had some talent and then I just happened to be in the right places at the right time, work, you know, working hard and getting recognition i suppose and then saying yes to opportunities and now as a book doctor it's not always like hey write you know two-thirds of a book in three months it can be something like six weeks it's it can be any term of time um but it's usually when a manuscript is in trouble and it's usually when it's being traditionally published like they just and it's also normally correlated with either ghostwriter can't quite do it whether because there's something in the relationship between the ghostwriter, the original ghostwriter and the author, or whether the author, it's more often like the author tried to write it themselves and then didn't quite have the chops to do it, can't quite make the edits that the editor really wants and needs to accept the book. And so yeah. then they call in like an intermediary. So you wrote an article once about should everybody write a book or not, right? They, this idea that everybody's got a book in them and you don't think that everybody's got a book in them, I don't think, and you don't think everybody should write a book. So who should write a book and who shouldn't write a book? But well, that, so that's harder to answer. I don't know if I have like who should and who shouldn't, but I think that we all have creative impulses and I think that we should follow them. So it could be that you have a creative impulse to create a podcast or write a play, write or produce a play or make clay pots or, you know, bad paintings. <laughs> <laughs> I think, and we all, and that, like, I truly am a believer in allowing the creative, like, I, I, that's one of my favorite parts about my job is helping people express their creative impulse. Um, however, in the entrepreneurial world, the emphasis is so much on a book at this point, right? Like it's, it's kind of a product, it's, you know, some people think of it as a business card. And then you get into these entrepreneurial circles and everyone has a book or is in the process of writing a book. So it starts to feel like I'm supposed to have a book. Why don't I do it? You know, mm -hmm. and I meet people where I'm like, you have so you have such a great voice and you already are a fabulous speaker. Why are you bothering with this medium when you could be doing video? You know, you could be doing podcasts. And it's, I think it's I think writing a book is a long haul commitment and people often don't understand how hard it is. 
And if you don't have an intrinsic desire to write a book because you just want to create that, not because of some external like, oh, I need it for my business. I just don't think most people can, you know, grind through it for as long as you need to to actually get a book written. Yeah, it's um, you can tell like when somebody has wrote a book because they felt like they needed it for their career and it's sometimes vacuous and it's shallow and it's just mm -hmm. conceit. Um, and Kristen, um, my wife, she is reading uh, and has been for a while now that that uh, Women Who Run With the Wolves book, right? So good. That book, oh my gosh, it takes you a day to read up two pages because <laughs> it's so nutrient dense and chewy and, you know, and it goes so deep back into like subconscious kind of folklore and archetypes that you just need time to digest it. There's no way you're going to, you know, have that same feeling that you did with one book with the second book, but there's also no way you can outsource that book. You, She can't have a ghostwriter write that book, right? Because the only way you learned the lessons in that book was the hard way, right? And the only way you found a way to articulate it was the hard way and slogging through it. And so that I think you can tell that. That's why the whole ghostwriter thing. I, and I know that there's some people who need a ghostwriter because that's not their medium. They do have a good story and they need somebody. So so it's possible, I guess, would, having worked with people, that you can have a story that would be a good book but you're not necessarily inclined that way. And those are the people who need a ghostwriter, fair? Yeah, yeah. My, my best experiences with clients are those in which they, have, they freely know I'm not a writer. I don't want to be a writer. And I do want to tell my story and be invested in the process, but I want someone else to do the writing. Um, so, and I say, I make that distinction because I had, I've had one client who was exactly that. She was, you know, very successful um, entrepreneur. She started Aiden and NA, you know, the baby company, um, mm -hmm. $100 million global brand and whip smart, very clear, knows what she wants. And she knew fully well, she didn't want to be a writer. And so, but she also made herself very available for the process and went deep. She would allowed me to go deep with her. Um, and in contrast, you have people who either like, they kind of want to be a writer, so they're never going to be happy. They're never going to be happy with the way it sounds because it doesn't sound like them. And there's this, this gap between what they wanted to do and wish they could do and just can't. Um, so I do, think, I do think that there's some circumstances under which ghostwriting works, but even when it's the ideal scenario, they still have to be willing to go as deep. Like I can't reflect something that you're not willing to, if you're not willing to go there, then like it's going to be shallow. If you're willing to go there and like we, we both go into the depths together and look at what's there, then it, it can be really great. It can be really deep, but yeah, it's, it's all about like, what am I getting from them? It's gonna, is going to um, be the baseline for what I'm even able to replicate on the page. So when I like read some of your stuff and you talk about like literary criticism about, you know, what problem books have taught you, right? And you say they all share these fundamental problems, like you know discernible structure and they don't have focus and their audience is unclear and all these other types of things. Every time I read that, I'm like, oh, that's the same true about people's lives. 
Like yeah. the, the, the same problem that you, if you want to figure out your shit and get your life straight, read Sarah's articles about what makes a bad book and then ask yourself the question if your life has that problem. I know mine did. Like I've had lots of times when I had no no discernible focus in my life, right? And, or I was just scattered and I didn't, I wanted to do it all. So my audience was unclear. So I had, didn't have any focus. Um, so, and I'm talking about it like people know this, you know, bad books, tell me what bad books look like and how to fix them. If you could, I know it's a big question. So yeah, I think I think there's there's a couple experiences when you're reading a book, right? There's the intellectual experience of like, are you are you making a point or are you using a lot of language to say something that could be said in one sentence, right? Are you organizing your sentences so that they flow from a b to c to d or does it go from a to f to to b to z and then m um and a lot of like we could we could kind of call that structure and that is the intellectual experience um but then there's the emotional experience and i think that's made up of a confluence of like how do you fold in stories? How do you tell stories? What emotions are imbued in those stories and how do they pick up on it or do they? Um, and so when I think of a bad book, it's like all, both of those elements are just askew, right? Like that's just, if you don't have structure, you're gonna feel it because you're gonna feel ungrounded. You're gonna start to wonder if I'm getting anything valuable out of this book. Um, you're going to be confused, right? Like you're, you're going to, if you're, especially if your things are out of order and, and arranged poorly, you're just not going to get the main lessons. And then the emotional thing, people need story and emotions to connect to what they're learning. Like we're just hardwired for that. So if there's no emotional tie to what you're explaining and it's just dry, um, you're going to have a hard time making any impact on the reader. So I think it's those, but it's also like, um, a scale right like it's not just well it's like well you could have really strong structure and uh really dry narrative and i mean that would be called a textbook right, right. yeah um or you could have you could have loose structure that's a little frustrating but like beautiful emotion and then that's going to come down to who is your reader and how are they equipped to pick up on that and did you are you reaching the reader that you intended? So there's just so many levers. I don't know if that was a clear answer. No, it's great. So uh, you have also worked with a lot of entrepreneurs uh, in, over your career. Um, it was kind of funny because I bumped into two of them. Just I met you and then within a month or two, I met two of your clients. One of them yeah. I went, met up in uh, Canada. Well, I spoke with at an event in Canada with the guy who happened to be your client. And then another one here in Des Moines who came through who happened to be connected to a buddy I knew down in Jacksonville. It's a world is small. I don't know how much of that is synchronicity, how much is just randomness type of thing, but it's kind of fun to have it in your life. Anyways, the point being back to the entrepreneurs is that a lot of us who have been entrepreneurs 
are drowning in a sea of opportunity. And it's a, it's a Barry Schwartz paradox of choice problem, which is what you think you want in your life is less structure and more freedom. Um, but the problem with that is that it, it, it diffuses your focus and you can never get something to catch fire. It's like your magnifying lens is not getting the light to spark things. And so do you see that a lot with the entrepreneurs that you have, that their life also lacks the same or mirrors the same lack of structure that their writing does? Yes. Um, it's, I think this is like a lot of entrepreneurs I meet and work with are the, definitely the, the, you know, quote unquote visionary type where they have a lot of ideas. And they, you know, a lot of them are really great ideas, but then they just can't focus on the one to carry it through, which is also why book writing can be so difficult. Because this is like a, you know, one year to two year commitment to write a book, to write a good book. Um, and so you can't be distracted by ideas all the time, because if you're constantly starting something new, then your book's going to languish because um, it just needs so much work and, and commitment. Um, so I do, I do see that a lot. I actually had a client who, um, I've had several clients who the thing they teach and are known for is the very thing they need to do in their own business and struggle with in a very deep way. And it's been a little shocking. And that's kind of one of the odd things about working with people on their books is that you, whether you like it or not, I, I do believe you're going to go really deep. Like, I'm going to see all of your neuroses if I'm working with you for a year or two, because it's going to come out in the creative process and all of the paranoias and the stories, like it's all going to be there. And um, it's really, it's far more intimate, I think, than people think. And so that's been some of the startling things is to realize that sometimes the gap between what you teach and how you actually live is huge, huge. Yeah. And I think that another thing that you probably notice about people like myself and other entrepreneurs is that we tend to have layers of personas that we've very finely crafted for public uh, consumption uh, that is the version of us that we want other people to see <laughs> and uh, when and not many of us sign up for voluntary neurosis uh, kind of uh, like to, to, to air our dirty laundry in front of people. Um, and even the books can be just an extension of that crafted persona that we're trying to put out there, right? So you, you have this attempt to drive with one foot on the accelerator and one foot on the brake moment. When you work with someone like you, you're like, for, this book, for it to be good, you need that in there. And they're like, no, that doesn't fit like what I, my brand of who I am type of thing. And you're, and even sometimes it's oh, my favorite one, and you've experienced this too, I'm sure, is, is the, the entrepreneurs who part of their image is that they want to be, I'm open and I'm in touch with my feelings and I'm helping other people do the same type of thing. But meanwhile, I'm still putting this in the closet over here so they can't see the true messed up parts of my, those, those guys are my favorite. I'm like, you, you, you can't, you're not fooling me on that stuff type of yeah. thing. Does that happen too? Oh, totally. Well, I think the funniest trend, I think this trend is on a downswing, thank God, but you know, that manufactured vulnerability, like, yes. Yeah. And it's copywriting. Like you read it and it's copy. It's very well structured copy. And maybe it isn't directly pointing to what something they're selling, but that's exactly what it is. And it just got so old to read. I, but I think 
I think like anything else, people are getting smarter. So that's stuff. I think that's why it's on the downswing. I just don't see as much of it anymore and, and people are kind of over it, but I totally resonate with what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So speaking of uh, not to, I mean, you just happen to work with a lot of people like this and, and I've been this person, so I can resonate with it. Um, so most, a lot of Western literature movies and things like that um, kind of incorporate this hero's journey archetype uh, because it's very saleable it's very uh, everybody who doesn't want to be the hero of their own story um, and who doesn't want things to end well and be able to return back with this boon of blessing and good news to everybody and you know it's a good one it's a feel-good one right and so as such we see it like all the time i mean i just watched it in moana last night and and all the uh, so what I found when I realized my story lacked structure, my life lacked structure, is, and I was like, oh, there's these different archetypes out there. Why don't I pick one that I can apply to my life and I will just live that one? And I like the way that this hero's journey one ends, so I'm just going to pick that one. <laughs> I literally did that. I literally said, okay, where in the story is my life right now in the hero's journey archetype? I'm gonna insert myself into the storyline there and choose that one. And then everything is going to end kind of along this archetype if I follow the path, right? Now, the weird thing is it actually did. It followed like exactly to the letter based upon, now it might be like wish projection or, or self-fulfilling prophecy, maybe, uh, or maybe when you adopt things for, I don't know how that works, but point being uh, most, authors that I see and most books are using this archetype and I don't know how many people out there I'm, I'm, I'm guess if you're listening to this kind of stuff you probably have have a little inkling of the hero's journey right but but what I don't see is the heroine's journey and the heroine's journey is is it's like if you're doing the hero's journey in your life but you're not doing the heroine's journey then you've got like half of the picture and you ended that cycle way too too soon. So I guess, can you tell me and tell the audience kind of what the hero's journey and then maybe more importantly, how what the heroine's journey is, how they're different and why they're both important, both to your life and maybe into a story. Yeah, cool. So, um, all right. So as just so just for a refresher and comparison, the hero's journey is the outward adventure, right? The hero goes out, he has to leave his ordinary world and um, meets the mentor or the allies and, you know, gets the training through a course of experiences and comes into the initial combat and maybe suffers a defeat or something doesn't go quite right. And he has to rally and learn from that and face the final battle and uh, I mean, we're simplifying quite a lot here, but, you know, eventually somehow wins this battle and returns to the ordinary world with, you know, the, the elixir of life or the, the, uh, the thing that he's learned. Um, and so the, the heroine's journey is an inner journey. So just, just as much as the hero's journey is external, like going out into the world, adventuring out, the heroine's journey is far more inward and it's not out as much as it is downward and I can't remember Matthew if we've talked about the Sumerian myth of Inanna and Avishkagal oh tell me okay, refresh yeah. me on that one. Story. and this is this is a really great story to illustrate the heroine's journey so Inanna is the queen of all the things it's like peace war love beauty 
Best I, title I, ever, by the way. It's like, yeah, queen of all the things. And and she's, you know, she's beautiful, she's worldly, and she learns that her brother has died and is in the underworld. And so she wants to go visit him, but one does not go to the underworld and return. The idea is that you go to the underworld and stay. But she says, I'm going to go anyway. I want to see my brother. I want to attend his funeral. And so she tells, before she goes, she tells her servant, who is also her friend, Ninshabar. She tells Ninshabar that if she's not back in three days, then she needs to send for help because something has gone wrong. So then Inanna descends into the in, uh, underworld and she has to disrobe through seven gates. So through seven gates, she passes, and at each gate, she has to give up everything that makes her a queen or uh, royalty, anything, you know, like her crown, her scepter, her jewelry, her beauty, um, her clothing, until she arrives in the underworld completely naked and totally human. And the moment she arrives, she's faced with her sister, Arishkagal, and Arishkagal is the opposite of Inanna. She is terrifying. She is enraged. She's ugly and, and um, you know, just this dark embodiment of everything that Inanna is not. And she's immediately enraged that Inanna has treaded into her world with the assumption that she can leave again. And so she kills Inanna on the spot and hangs her body on a hook to rot. So, Three days go by and Ninshabar doesn't see any sign of Inanna and starts to start, starts to approach these other gods to ask for help. And most of their responses are essentially that she should have known. You don't go to the underworld and come back. She got what she deserved. So no, we're not going to help her. So she goes around to all these gods who are all male and they're all saying no. And then he go, she goes to this final God who's male, but he's got a mastery over both his masculine and feminine energies. And he says, I will help you. And he create, he pulls up from the dirt at his feet and, and molds this clay into these two sexless beings. And he sends them into the underworld. And so they go into the underworld and they do Nothing like demanding the body of Inanna. They don't ask questions. They don't try to take her. They just sit with Arishkagal while she rages. And when she rages, they rage with her. And when she cries in sorrow, they cry in sorrow with her. And when she moans in pain and agony, they moan with her. And this goes on for days until she's spent. And she feels so much better. And she says, thank you so much for what you've done for me. What can I do for you? And so they ask for the body of Inanna and she gives it to them. And so they leave and they, you know, they arrive back at her palace and feed her nourishing food. And meanwhile, the guardians of the underworld have decided that no, well, not decided, but you know, they don't like a soul leaving. It's kind of one for one. If you're going to leave, you got to send someone else down. So they're only hot fair. on her heels. Yeah, only fair. <laughs> so they're hot on her heels. She gets back to her palace and sees her consort, Dumuzi, on the throne. And instead of mourning her loss, he is consorting with her gorgeous servants. That's and enjoying, 
Yes, <laughs> enjoying the fruits of her queendom. And so as soon as she realizes she has to send someone in her place, she just points at him. <laughs> <laughs> Serves him right. Right. So let me let me say this. There's a couple, there's a lot of different variations to that story. The ending is different in different versions. I learned this story from a feminist writer. So there's a little so that ending <laughs> is definitely different in different versions. And it sort of just, you know, makes my feminist heart a little happy to tell it. <laughs> it's funny to me. But if you just take apart, take like even just move that aside um, and just look at the descent, right? So it's a metaphor for an inner journey. She has to be willing to go face her dark side, essentially. And what got her out wasn't force or negotiation or trying to fix or change anything, but empathy. Just sitting yeah. with it. Like that's the key of the story is just, you're not gonna fix the monster. You're not gonna tame it. You can't shove it away anymore because she's enraged precisely because you did shove her away. And all that's going to work is sitting until it's truly spent. She also had to strip away the layers, didn't she? I yeah. mean, her type of things on the on the way down. Mm -hmm. So the the hero's journey, and I think it's important. Like the the masculine and feminine aspects of a, of the of the hero or the heroine's journey really doesn't have much to do with gender as we normally understand them. Right. It's more. I mean, like you might be a man who needs to go on a heroine's journey in your own life or a woman who needs to go on a hero's journey because that's what the the balance looks like in your life. Like when I first began my life and didn't know what my dream was, I needed to do that hero stuff. I needed to get the fire necessary. It's like Buddhists talk about, you need to build a raft to get to the other side of the river, but then you also need to let the raft go. It's okay. like letting the raft go is the heroine's journey, but building it up is the hero's journey, right? And so if if when I, the funny thing is, it was, we talked earlier about entrepreneurs, right? So uh, the entrepreneur's journey is largely uh, outward hero's journey, right? And America is built on the hero's journey. And yeah. so we everything we do is out there in the world. We build big skyscrapers. We start buildings. We, boot, we call it bootstrapping because we say that we did it all ourselves in our garage or whatever the backstory <laughs> that we like to tell ourselves is, even and ignoring everybody else who built the garage and <laughs> gave us life and all those other types of things. But we, we tell ourselves these things. So we build it. We add the layers of self onto it. We get ourselves to a really big raft and then we upgrade it into a kayak and then we upgrade it into a yacht. And so we get to the other side of the river and we say, okay, here we are, completed the hero's journey, came back, like my boat, everybody, I uh, got the elixir of life and it's gonna cost you like <laughs> a couple bucks a piece to buy it type of thing. And you really you forgot that now you gotta go back down, strip away all the layers of self and just sit with a lot of that dark shadow kind of stuff um, to complete the full scale of the journey. I don't know, that's been my personal experience of, and, and I didn't, what happened for me was I didn't realize once I completed the hero's journey cycle that I was only halfway done. I was like, ah, did it, <laughs> got all the way back home. Right. And then like, nobody. No, buddy, you got about eight to 10 years worth of going into the underworld that you still got to do. 
before you're even close to doing the full cycle on this thing. Right. Um, so I, I think that that, thank you for explaining that. Um, have you, what does that actually look like to do in your real life? Like what, how, how have you actually practically gone to the underworld and stripped away the layers? Yeah, really good question. Um, I think it looks different for everybody, but for me, I would say psychedelics have aided in that for sure. Um, and while specifically, I, I, specific, I mean, ayahuasca, mushrooms, um, mushrooms with MDMA have been uh, very helpful for sort of sitting, peeling back and sitting with those things that are hard. Um, because with the combination of mushrooms and MDMA, you're you're just kinder to yourself there's some there's some saying i wish i could remember i think it's a buddhist saying and it's sort of like awakening or awareness without compassion is like introducing a vulnerable four-year-old to a hungry tiger mm -hmm. right and so mm. when you are it's, it's something like that um so when you're on mdma and mushrooms of that combination like that tiger is disabled you can see those things and be vulnerable and you can kind of work through the full cycle. Um, you know, assuming your set and setting is a good one, but you can work through them without having that immediate like judgment of, Oh, I can't believe I feel that way. Or I don't like this part, all the stuff that comes up when you see something about yourself that you may not be comfortable with right away. Um, but I do believe in journeying without, I don't, um, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think we have we talk about journeying without drugs often enough like if you say the word journey normally people either think or they think you're talking about a psychedelic trip and recently i well not recently like about two years ago i was feeling depressed i've struggled with depression on and off throughout my life and we were in new zealand and i could kind of feel it tugging at me and and i mean by the depression i could feel like it it's sort of sucking at me and my usual mo was to fight it all the time like you have to fight like hell to get out of it and by that time i'd read the story of inanna and had a little bit of a different viewpoint of what it might look like and so one day i said okay it's trying i feel like i'm being pulled down i'm actually just going to intentionally go down and so I cleared the house, it's like the house was empty for the day, um, kind of made it ceremonial in my own way, whatever that looks like. So for me, it's saging a place and cleaning up and, and you know, setting up pillows and a blanket so I'm comfortable. And then I put on some drumming music and I visualized an opening in the earth, like a cave. Excuse me, and I just allowed myself to actually go down and to allow whatever visions were going to come to come. And you can call it imagination or you can call it visions. Um, this experience was unique in that I didn't have to try hard. Like sometimes if I sit down to do this, you know, nothing comes or they're just kind of fleeting. This was like the minute I sat down and turned the drumming on, it was very present and very strong visuals. And I was sort of taken into this place. Through a, through a couple different landscapes until I arrived at this place where it was just like this sucking hole. And I sat with the hole and saw that I had been trying to throw things into the hole, like shopping, shoes, 
food, you know, I was trying to fill some hole and the hole was not going to be filled with the things I was doing. But it wasn't also going to be fixed by me doing anything. I really just had to sit there in this visualization and just observe it and be with it. And then in the way that these things kind of shift, like eventually I was just booted out of the realm and came back. And it isn't as if it was everything was better from that point on, but where I had been steadily descending in mood and, you know, feeling the, from that day on, it began to ascend. It was like the, the very clear, this is the bottom part. Now you're going to start moving steadily up and out. See, thank you. That was, I think that when, for me, I grew up with so much taboo associated with all these practices that weren't allowed in the world that I came from, right? It was considered, you know, demonic or satanic or like, you know, new age or whatever they wanted to call for. It wasn't part of who we were, right? Even though it was a normal human experience, like the, uh, like daydreamings or having a vision or things like that. These are also described in Christian traditions. I mean, when Ezekiel goes up to the seventh heaven, right? Or when people have an, when Paul or Saul on the road to Damascus has this uh, experience where the veil is lifted off of his eyes kind of thing. These are in that world, but it's when, when somebody who um, still has a, a stigma attached to the idea of, you know, mushrooms and MDMA and things like that. They're like, I don't think I can go there because I still, it's too much for me. Um, there's a slow, there's a slow way of getting there. And then there's a fast way of getting there too, uh, like an accelerant on it. Um, I just finished reading this book called, I think it was the history of the religion with no name. And it was about how it, we used to have these mystery schools, like the Eleusinian mystery schools for thousands of years. And what they would do is they would take weekenders into this extravagant experience. And it was probably including things like the Kikion or Air God or mushrooms or whatever it was. There's a lot of theories as to what it was, but it was taking people who wouldn't have, you know, 30 years of their life to sit in a monastery and kind of bring the energy levels up and have the experience, you know, build up the gauge of the wire to handle the Kundalini and then have the experience and then awaken and then process or whatever, because they worked every day, they could have these kind of rapid experiences to sit with their, their ego self to look at the layers, um, and then have people there to help them reprocess these things so that they could come to grips with it, right? Yeah. And I think, so I think that part of what we have as a problem in society right now is that a couple problems. One, our stories have been um, traditionally in religious arenas uh, in terms of the structure and society have centered around religious stories and that in a kind of postmodern world, some of those stories have gone by the wayside in terms of people believing in them. So we have a society that's somewhat loose from a structure point of view because we don't have good stories to help us understand what we're going through. Uh, secondly, we don't have a good arena for people to in a um, socially acceptable manner, look at the, take the the heroine's journey, go down, strip away the selves, look at it, sit with it, process it type of thing, and then heal from some of those things. And so do are there places, like I think you have some friends who've helped do, do, do this or you've lived in different places. Have you seen different places where people go to do these things and heal that helps facilitate those things? And are there different, like you described being a yoga teacher and I remember you talking about you you wrote about doing backbends and how that helped you release some of the stuff that was there and um, 
are there different places that you can go as a person to do these things? It's a good question. I mean, there's retreat centers all over the world. I think of one in um, Costa Rica. It's very, I know it's it's pretty expensive. It's three hundred dollars a night or more, something like that. But you get access to ayahuasca and you know massage. Lumorpho or something. Yeah. Uh, what is it? Rhythmia. Rhythmia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Rhythmia. Um, I mean, it's it's a it's definitely like this extensive suite of things, the tools that you can use to go deep in your own inner journey and heal. But what's, and I love it. Like I want to go to Rhythmia someday, but it is like the price point makes it exclusive for people who yeah. um, have a lot of money, which is, you know, and it's great for them. It's, I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying that when I think of places, um, they're usually very expensive and it definitely, it, it kind of means like you're at least upper middle class before you're going to be able to afford that. But honestly, I think we have like a, a lack of places like this because church, I mean, you got pastoral counseling, but then you've got the whole overlay of the religion in which it stands, which not knocking religion, but m many of them just don't have healthy stories or healthy ways of like helping people integrate their, their whole selves. Um, you know, we've got therapy and I'm a huge proponent of therapy, but it only covers one aspect which is the mental aspect and some of the emotional and it's so hard to find a good therapist like not every therapist is good so it's kind of like dating mm -hmm. you have to date around before you settle on one um yeah so I, I i think we have a lack of these kinds of places i mean when i tell people about the heroine's journey no one knows what i'm talking about when i first mention it and everyone gets it when i tell the story like we all know this and it's just not a tool that we see in front of our face very often. Yeah, I agree, which is a problem. There's a, I watched, there's this company called Evertable, I think is what the name is. Mm -hmm. And the way that they work is that they have, they're trying to get healthy food into food deserts or food oases, right? And, um, and what they've done is they've tweaked their business model to allow different price points for different people. So you have in Los Angeles and higher, more affluent neighborhoods, they'll take like a quinoa bowl and they'll charge nine bucks for it over here. But if they're down in Watts or Compton, that same thing is four to five bucks for that same healthy food, but it's the same food. Um, but they're they're shifting things. So, and I think that um, when you talk about like experiences down in Costa Rica, I think that there's a need to business model out this a little bit to make this work. Like there was, um, I was writing a little bit about this group that came to America in the 1690s and they were a pietist group of German theosophical monks um, of the Rosicrucian tradition. And their whole model was they would work and have jobs um, tending, you know, being healers and planting gardens and doing and teaching uh, elementary grade education at the time. And that would supply them with income for their group so that they could give away the healing, right? The healing part could be free. And I think that that like creating um, places and spaces for this healing so that the healing would be free but supported by another maybe income producing model is something that we need desperately. And we need it in places where people don't have to go to Costa Rica to do it, right? Mm -hmm. There should be like the version of an ever table 
for healing and it should be able to you come in the door you do an input kind of thing with people so it gets to know your personality like where you are in the journey and and it also has to understand like the person too like what not everybody is ready for or they can't they can't hear it or they because it's the way that it's presented to them is in a way that they're they've got too many defenses put up to that like for me if, if i'm coming straight out of an evangelical background i'm not going to be able to talk about mdma and mushrooms because it's going to shut me down and i'm going to walk out the door whereas if i talked about you know talk therapy or if i talked about yoga or if i talked about other types of things it might get through the defenses and allow me to start a journey in a way that's acceptable to me and maybe down the line I'm, i talk about that or maybe i don't maybe that gets me there right but everybody needs to heal regardless of faith and and there should be these things that allow to facilitate those kind of things i don't know yeah it's a beautiful idea i totally agree and it's it's as we're sitting here thinking about it, i'm just thinking about our own community of des moines and we kind of have we don't we have some good healers here but we don't have a wide level there's not a huge array of different styles right like they kind of all center around a you know we're, we're on a spectrum and they're all centered around the same kind of area of thinking and um but it's amazing to me how many how few people know about these things i mean even thinking about inner space you know the yeah the, mm -hmm. yeah and they have a lot of healing modalities there and when i ask people who are i think are pretty plugged into the spiritual community they don't even know inner space exists so, what tell tell what is inner space for people who don't know that it exists and yeah. this is in so des moines space, for yeah yeah so inner space um it's it's a i think it's a for-profit business it's not it's not yeah it's for-profit business um based in des moines and it, the idea is to bring a spiritual community together so they have offices where i think there's a reiki healer a chiropractor massage therapist uh, a medium i think there's a, actually quite a few more healers who rent out some of their spaces so their services are available all the time then they have a salt room um they've got workshop space and then gymnasium space so it's it's sort of like there's some services you can get all the time and then there's workshops that kind of happen periodically um, of course not not as much right now but you know different offerings of either teachers who are coming through or local teachers who want to put something on so just offers and it's all spiritually oriented or at least wellness oriented so um, there's a lot of opportunities there both to learn and to teach and just so many people don't even know about it yet. So I think in Des Moines specifically, it's this like lack of, co and I wonder if this expands out to other cities, like a lack of cohesiveness and then um, a little bit of a narrower pool of available services. Yeah, I, I really believe in just doing things where you're at. Um, I used to back when I was on the heroin on the hero's journey. You want to be freaking Elon Musk, and you want to you think you think big. Like how can I 10x this thing and you know really blow it out of the water on a global scale, kind of thing. And and that's that's not it, man. I mean, it it's just it it sounds so Trey. We hear it all the time. I mean, about changing yourself and you change the world, right? But that's it. I mean. That's all you can do is you change you. You do the journey. You complete the journey. The butterfly effect of that happening in your life, in your community, will reach other people, and and it will change. 
I, I mean, I, I, you've seen it happen, I'm sure, in your mm -hmm. life as you've done things and the kind of ripple effect of those things happening, but that's all you really can do. And that's all you really should be doing is you. It's I think Ram Dass had something about that. The, the one thing that I can do for you is me and the one thing you can do for me is you kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good sentiment. I like that. Yeah, I yeah. think we forget that. It's hard to see, especially, you know, I share a lot of my writing on Facebook or Medium and it's sort of a one way, I mean, people can comment, right? Um, but it's not an open dialogue. So it's hard to tell if you have any impact. Is anybody out there? Right, is it, am I just shouting into the void? <laughs> you know, like, is, this, yeah. is there any point to this? But I've found, I may not know it then, but usually someone later will say, you know, that piece you wrote about this months ago or a year ago or years, you know, really changed the way I saw that. And um, I don't know, I think that's its own reward. And just is, is, even if you don't hear it all the time, you're not getting, you know, constant adulation about the things you put out there. I think I just try to remember, like people are reading and people are thinking through what you say and affected by what you do. So maybe this is kind of a good place to kind of wrap things up a little bit for you because I don't want to take all your day, but I, I wanted to tell you this, okay? I was fortunate enough to actually sit through one of your classes at Innerspace, right? You put on a class about narrative therapy, right? And you took a, took us through exercises of imagining a time when you were, maybe it was a traumatic event, or I, I'm not exactly sure what the moment we meant, or a figure in your life that you struggle with. And using the elements of that you have picked up over the years being a writer, being a, a doctor for other people's bad works, um, you were able to um, facilitate an event where we would write about characters in our life that we struggle with, right? Actually, why am I describing it? What, I mean, what does narrative therapy do in a nutshell? Like, what does an exercise look like and why do people do it? Yeah, so the, the idea with narrative therapy is to examine the stories in our lives and to see what kinds of meanings we're making out of them, out of the events, out of the characters, and then to, if it suits us, to potentially look at rewriting those stories. Um, so, you know, I think if I, this was over a year ago, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> so I think what we were doing, we were focusing on like a pivotal moment in your life and you had to kind of write out like who are the characters and who is didn't i have you do like who's the victim who's the yeah. bad guy and yep. who's the mm -hmm. hero something like that yeah it was sort of a spin on cartman's drama triangle as well and and then we kind of picked each of those positions apart to see well, yeah. what does it Blew mean to be the hero right and what does it mean to be the bad guy and and how are they are they really the bad guy or Who's making them the bad guy and who's the hero? Right. And maybe it's maybe it's only two people involved and each of you trade places in this triangle. Um, if I yeah, like right. one yeah. yeah, one of the things I remember you did was you would take and this is really important, I think, right now, specifically right now with what we're going through in society, right? Because there's so much of the emphasis on the other 
you know, especially politically, that you're either this or that, right? But what you did in the exercise was you said, okay, take the take the hero, if that's you, if you think of yourself that way, take the villain in your story, maybe that's your, your I don't know, your father, your mother, your, your wife, your, your business partner, whoever it is. Now, flip the script a little bit. Who is the the villain of the villain? Like, uh, or, and what is the thing that they, what is their motivation in the story? Right. And put yourself in that. And, and you had to write it out, like literally write out those types of things. And it was a forced re-examination of perspective by popping out of the story a little bit and looking at it from a, on the writer's perspective, which forces examination. And right now you've got people who are just so sucked into the drama right? That they can't examine themselves in the role they're playing. They can't examine others. They give no credit to the other of having any motivations. They're just, a, everybody else is a two-dimensional character for them, and they're the only one with texture and depth, right? Yeah. <laughs> Such a good way to put it. And so I got, so this, back to what I was saying about you specifically, you have a really amazing gift that you offer people by giving them perspective on story and how story is impacting our lives and how story is is running the there is running their lives and our lives at a lot of level in ways that we're not even aware of right and by showing us how that affects characters and stories and showing us how our lives are lived through stories you're showing us the mechanisms of action of how we are living right and so I like when I was thinking about talking to you today, I was like, you know what? Sarah should write a book called Book Doctor Heal Thyself. And it <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, the book would all be about like what you've learned through working with people about the element of good li good living through examining good stories, right? Sure. And and then how you've actually done it in your own life and how it ended up as the character who tried these things and, you know, and kind of mash that idea together. I would love to read that book sometimes. So I'm just putting it out into the universe, hoping that someday materializes. <laughs> but, but I just want, I wanted to like, thank you for being willing to be vulnerable, being willing to continue to follow that voice even though you know we all get zigzaggy and sidetracked about things um because I, people are listening you know and i think that you do have an important voice and i think it is very helpful to aid in healing and perspective um which is what we need now and we all have to figure out how we can do that in our own ways and you are doing that so thank you yeah thank you that's a lovely compliment awesome well we did it. We got out of our <laughs> 20, 20 minutes. There's, there's a lot more that I had planned on talking about, and I could probably go for a couple more hours, but I'm not going to. Um, you have some really interesting writing for people who want to check it out online. I mean, you can start by checking out your website. Tell people where they can kind of connect with you and read more of your work and things like that. Yeah, so you can check out my website at sarahstibbets.com. And that's S-A-R-A-S-T-I-B-I-T-Z. You might need to try that out a few times. To get it. <laughs> um, and then I'm on Medium as well. I like to share quite a bit on Medium. And 
I kind of had a lull in the fall, but I'll be sp uh, swinging back into it um, this spring. Do you still work professionally with people? Or are you saying, screw that, I'm just going to do me for the rest I'm, of... Yeah, I'm still working professionally. I guess my... I keep winnowing down and getting more and more specific, which is making things better and and more meaningful for me. So mostly I work with entrepreneurs um, on the business side and mostly I'm doing nonfiction, something around, usually around business, how-to or memoir. Hmm. But, I, but I am getting far more selective about the people that I take um take on to work with because i'm making more time for my own writing because i have a few projects in the works that i want to have out by the end of this year love it so the yeah. people you do want to work with are people who are willing to go deep and spend at least two years struggling through things not people who just want to outsource stuff and uh kind of put the best foot forward uh those kind of people right yeah so when it comes to the time time frame for writing a book it's different if you're self-publishing and you are and you have the time to spend you could be done in nine months to a year but with traditional you're committing probably two years maybe three so think of it that way um, but yeah i prefer to work with people who like to have fun who like to go deep um creative thinkers some of the you know some of the actually most of the clients i work with end up becoming really good friends so that's kind of this like do i want to hang out with you do i like yeah. you then, yeah. Okay, cool. Let's work together. It was kind of the same idea that I had with doing things like the, like a podcast. It was, I just, it was a forced, it forced me to be more real publicly with who I was by having conversations that were off the cuff that would force me to answer them truthfully, not have a chance to sit back and craft an answer that would be, uh, you know? So I was right. like, okay, th this is an exercise in painting myself into a corner uh, and being more transparent. And then the second thing was, it was this idea that if I can just hoist up my flag or broadcast a signal like the SETI uh, search for extraterrestrial intelligence type of thing, if I could broadcast, to, with people that I find interesting and that I generally like, that maybe it would create this kind of reverberation effect and I would build out a people of like-minded individuals because it's it's not often that you find people like you, you know, that are into the same weird stuff that you are. But the beautiful thing about being alive right now is you don't have to be physically, geographically next to someone to build out a tribe of people. Right, I love that. I, Cause I actually struggle with that too. You know, I tend to, it's like the silos, right? I'm the, I'm the professional writer. I don't talk about psychedelics in a public setting. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right? Yeah. But it's, yeah. it's been a huge part of my evolution. So to not talk about it is, I mean, to this point, it's, it feels almost out of integrity. So I have the same situation where I'm trying to bring all of these pieces of myself into the same arena so that they can all play together. Oh, that's a, it ends uh, like it's the Moana. We started with Moana, we end with Moana. You take the knife out of the thing and it says you have to have truth was one of the things that she was missing. She was not being authentic to herself by pretending to be a man when she was truly a woman. And she only stepped into her true power when she was saying, this is me, this is who I am. And so that's the ultimate thing. There it is. Love it. Great. <laughs> Awesome. Well done. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. All right, Sarah. Well, thank you again for doing this. This has been a lot of fun. I knew it was going to be a lot of fun and it didn't yeah, uh, I was disappoint. To it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for cool. inviting me on. And all right. Sounds good. It was such a fabulous conversation. I was looking forward to this all week.
Awesome. Same, same. It's quarantine is, uh, I can be a hermit for a certain amount of time, but it, uh, eventually I got to let it out, I guess. So yeah, totally. All right. Well, have a great day. We'll talk right. to you soon. All right. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Ah.